It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Kate Ballard episode of The Muppet Show, featuring our own very special guest star, Robbie Rizal. Welcome back, everyone. We are almost there, almost to the finish line at the end of season one. We're glad you're still with us. I'm David Levy. Here with me today are Adam Grossworth, Michal Richardson, Christy Bauer, and our own very special guest star, Robbie Rizal. Hi, Robbie. Hey. Robbie is the A&R director of Broadway Records by Day, cabaret semi-star and recording artist by night, podcaster every other Friday, and an all-around delight. Robbie, I'm so glad you're here with us. Uh, Let's start by hearing a little bit about your history with the Muppets. I grew up with the Muppets. They came out, the the Muppet show came out the year I was born. So uh, the Muppets have never not been in my life. I saw all of the films in the theaters uh, growing up, and I definitely remember watching the Muppet show in real time at some point during the run of it, and definitely in reruns ever since. Nice and concise. Well, we are excited to hear what you have to say about this episode, which, uh, I think is a provocative one. But before we get there, (laughs) Adam, uh, where are we? This is season one, episode 23, the penultimate episode of season one in our production order. It was taped November 23rd through 26th, 1976, and it aired in New York on March 7th, 1977, and in the UK on January 23rd. I guess that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Kay Ballard was a funny lady who did well in burlesque, nightclubs, musical comedy, television, and film, but never quite hit the A-list. Born in Cleveland in 1925, young Catherine Gloria Balota showed early aptitude in singing as well as studio art and playing the flute. Following her graduation from high school, she enrolled in art school, but decided that while she'd never be among the greatest artists, she had a better shot in show business. She started out doing local gigs as a singing comedian, playing restaurants, nightclubs, and even burlesque houses. One of the club owners she performed for had a connection to comedy band leader Spike Jones, the Weird Al of the 40s, and Spike told Kay that if she ever came to LA, she should give him a call. So she did what any ambitious star to be would do and bought herself a one-way ticket. Lucky for her, Spike was true to his word, and she was soon touring with his band. In 1946, she left the band to make her Broadway debut in the review Three to Make Ready. She continued to develop her club act and became a regular in the hip clubs of Greenwich Village. Her breakout role came in 1954, when she played Helen in the musical The Golden Apple, which transposed the story of the Trojan War to the U.S. Civil War. She introduced the song Lazy Afternoon and stopped the show. It's a lazy afternoon And the bee bugs are zooming and the tulip trees are blooming and there's not another human in view but us two in fact she was such a sensation in the show that richard avedon shot her photo for the cover of life magazine the show while beloved by superfans was not a hit and her follow-up show reuben reuben closed on the road that same year, she introduced the song Fly Me to the Moon. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, 
course, Frank Sinatra ended up having the hit version of the song, and few remember Kay's version. This would become an unfortunate trend in her career. She spent the next few years playing club dates and making guest appearances on TV shows. In 1957, she had her next real high-profile opportunity, playing one of the stepsisters, alongside Alice Ghostly, in the original Rodgers and Hammerstein television production of Cinderella, starring Julie Andrews. This became the most-watched television show in history, seen by 107 million viewers, a record it held for decades. The following year, she made her big-screen debut in the musical The Girl Most Likely To, playing Jane Powell's best friend. The film is mostly notable for being the final movie released as an RKO picture. It's not very good, and features two different racist musical numbers, but... Kay is delightful, and there is a great dance number on a beach featuring a lot of hot shirtless men splashing each other. Uh, It's a very horny movie, (laughs) but I digress. Are they racist in different ways? Yes, one is racist about Mexicans, and the other is racist about Native Americans. Great. In 1959, she released an album called The Fanny Bryce Story and Song, which ended up inspiring the creation of the musical Funny Girl, which Kay was not involved in. Her career took off in the 60s with a featured role on The Perry Como Show, followed by the only time she created a role in a Broadway hit when she played the magician's assistant, the incomparable Rosalie, in Carnival. In 1962, she and her longtime accompanist, Arthur Siegel, released a comedy album based on the Peanuts comic strip that provided the inspiration for what would become the musical You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which she was not involved in. When she was on the Perry Como show, Kay's pal Fred Ebb and his writing partner John Kander offered her a new song called My Coloring Book. The producers of the show gave it instead to Sandy Stewart because Kay was the comedian and Sandy was the singer. Sandy had a minor hit with the song, which was then picked up by Barbara Streisand, who had a somewhat bigger hit with it. Kay understood, and Fred offered to write her a new song to make up for it. Maybe this time I'll be lucky, she responded, and Kander and Ebb came back with the song Maybe This Time which Kay introduced in 1964. Maybe this time I'll be lucky Maybe this time he'll stay Her recording didn't go anywhere, so Fred and John offered the number to Liza Minnelli, who believed they had written it for her, which Kay discovered sitting in the audience of Liza's club act when she heard Liza sing the song. After all of Kay's near misses, this felt like a big betrayal to her, and she stopped speaking to Fred Ebb for two decades. They did eventually make up. In 1965, she appeared in the off-Broadway hit The Decline and Fall of the Entire World is Seen Through the Eyes of Cole Porter, which was conceived and produced by eccentric impresario Ben Bagley. In the 60s, she made frequent appearances on Merv Griffin, Johnny Carson, Mike Douglas, and of course, Hollywood Squares. In 1967, she landed her biggest television role yet, co-starring with Eve Arden in The Mothers-in-Law, a new sitcom from Desi Arnaz. It ran for two seasons on NBC before being canceled. This meant it didn't produce enough episodes to be sold into syndication as reruns, so the show was largely forgotten, although now you can watch it on DVD and streaming. In 1970, she played a recurring character on The Doors Day Show, but that would be her last ongoing sitcom role until the 90s, when she was a main character on the one-season syndicated sitcom, What a Dummy. She would continue to appear consistently on game shows and variety shows and make guest appearances on sitcoms and dramas for the rest of her career. Her biggest Broadway heartbreak came in 1973, when she started the new musical Molly based on the sitcom The Goldbergs. She blamed the failure of the show on the ineptitude of the director and the inexperience of the writers, but the failure weighed on her for a long time. 
She wouldn't return to Broadway until 1981, when she took over the role of Ruth in The Pirates of Penzance. She continued to have small parts in movies, including the original Freaky Friday and The Ritz with Muppet Show guest star Rita Moreno, both in 1976. She never really stopped performing. In her later years, she made memorable appearances, including singing Broadway Baby in the Paper Mill Playhouse production of Follies and touring in the all-star 20th anniversary production of Nonsense with Georgia Engel, Mimi Hines, Darlie in Love, and Lee Merriweather. In 2006, she published her memoir, How I Lost 10 Pounds in 53 Years. She officially retired in 2015. Kay Ballard died at her home in Rancho Mirage, California on January 21st, 2019 at the age of 93. Later that year, a documentary about her life was released called Kay Ballard, The Show Goes On. Uh, Robbie, what did you think broadly about this episode before we get into details? In the words of poet laureate RuPaul Andre Charles, meh. It's, it feels like sort of a filler episode where, like, on paper, everything makes sense. Kay Ballard makes sense with the Muppets, but because probably because it's first season, it just it doesn't really take off the way it should, in my opinion. Christy, how about you? Yeah, the longer you think about this episode, the faster it evaporates into a fine mist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like It's like there's a weird hex around it. I can't explain it. It's... <laughs> Also, it's a very weird feeling for the end credits to be my favorite thing in an episode, but it absolutely is in this episode. Uh, I I think the backstage plot pays off in the most delicious way, um, and everything else is fine. Like, not great, not bad, just eh. Michal? Yeah, the end credits were my favorite part as well, and not for any, you know, Statler and Waldorf type reasons. It was right. just a nice payoff. But yeah, now that we've seen what the Muppet show can be. It's a little bit of a disappointment that we're kind of hitting a slump late in the season, or at least this episode feels like a slump all by itself. And it feels a little disappointing, um, partly because Kay Ballard is clearly very talented and very down to clown and is very comfortable with the Muppets, but just the, the pacing and the choices that they make for these sketches and songs and the way that they use her, it just, it gets painful after a while and then they'd slap one note samba in our faces and uh, you guys, I, I fucking hate one note samba i just do not like that song aside from the muppet show any place i hear it i don't like it i'm sorry david so i can't pretend that i like this episode better than anyone but i think they were doing something that will pay off in season two that I want to draw our attention to. And I think it's why this episode fails, but also why season two gets better, which is that this is the first episode where the guest star is really and truly integrated into the backstage story. And I think what that means is that the backstage story becomes the best part of this episode. What it also means is that they miscalibrated how much else of the episode they would now need to fill up, which is why, there are so many sketches that literally feel like filler, especially because they don't rely on a lot of their go-to sketches, right? Like if we had had a Wayne and Wanda and a veterinarian's hospital instead of a Venda face and the weird barbershop guy, uh-huh. if we had had a, an electric mayhem number instead of two fucking hillbilly numbers, <laughs> um, you know, I think those would have helped with the balance but I want to give them credit for realizing that integrating the guest star into the backstage plot is the way forward, even if they didn't quite figure out 
how to make that work in the context of the larger episode as a whole. Yeah, I agree with all of you. I, I do. I think I did like this episode a little better, but it, it's weird. This is one of my favorite backstage plots, certainly so far. Um, but also like maybe ever, I mean, we'll, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'll eat those words because we've got a long way to go. But like it, this is this this is in the book that we've talked about. So I remember it really well. It's a great backstage plot. Kay Ballard is totally game in a way that we have talked about um, past guests either being or very much not being. But it, yeah, it's some of the worst onstage stuff that we've seen so far. Um, there are two numbers that I hate much more than, than one note. <laughs> so I don't know. It's weird that it doesn't come together because I, I think all the pieces are, are there. So yeah, I don't know. Like I just, I, I love half this episode and um, really dislike the other half of it. So let, let's get into it. Hey, y'all, remember how last week we got to go on a scenic tour of the Great American Songbook? (laughs) That was fun. Can we do that again? (laughs) Yeah. uh, No. Nowhere to go but down. Nope. Uh, Nowhere to go but down. As we've mentioned, there's a lot of hillbilly nonsense this week, and even me, a native Kentuckian, can't defend most of it. Our first number is the return of the country trio. In the summertime when all the trees and leaves are green And the red bird sings out of the blue Cause you don't want my love Yep. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, we don't even get Frank in the clip? There you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, this is a song that somehow managed to uh, make its way onto The Muppet Show twice. We will get to talk about it again in season three. It's no. Uh, <laughs> 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 the good news is, is the, the, the next version of it is better. I can confirm. Can't be worse. So, so this is a, a song that is known alternately as "In the Summertime" and "You Don't Want My Love." "In the Summertime" is the official title. It's a Roger Miller song. The second appearance of the song will be in the Roger Miller episode. So, we're not going to talk a whole lot about Roger Miller. Uh, Roger Miller was really hot when he was younger. That's a thing that we talked about in our Slack this week, dude. We'll put it in the show notes, even though we're not going to get. We there learned some things for a while. this week. It's, yep, we're not going to make you wait for it, guys. <laughs> is this the Roger Miller who wrote "Big River"? Sure is. Wow. So this song uh, was one of his earliest songs uh, from 1960, and it was a hit for Andy Williams, who did not, unsurprisingly, do any of the mouth noise nonsense in his version, and it hit number 64 in 1960. I like the country trio. Of of the two hillbilly numbers, this is the one that I would probably fall on my my sword for. I I mean... It's charming. I don't disagree with that. (laughs) You have to make me, you're going to make me Yeah, choose. I actually enjoyed this. We can fight about it, but it's when the gym puppet scrunches up his little face and they all have their little hair bouncing around. I think it's cute. And when we hear the audio, it sounds very fraggly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The best part for me was the Frank Muppet who just like goes absolutely nuts headbanging when he gets his little solo, which, by the way, is pretty true to the Roger Miller original, like that sort of weird scat thing. Like 
the first time I saw this, I was like, what the fuck? And then I listened to it and I was like, okay. The second best part is the Jerry puppet has these crocheted overalls that I just love. And it's just such a great little (laughs) detail. Yeah. I don't know why I I have, I have not had this visceral reaction to these puppets in the past. Like I, I get that they're modeled on the humans. Like I, there's, there's something about this performance and maybe it's just a song. I, I found them really off putting in their mannerisms, like in their facial, whatever. Um, and, um, and like the accents are really extreme in a very put up, put on way. Like I understand that, that Jim grew up in Mississippi, but like, I don't know there's something weird about it. And, and the particular way that they are singing the instrumental part while they are playing their instruments, I, I don't know. I hate everything about it. It made it made me slightly insane. Well, there is something about the the actual construction of the song that is sort of unnerving. Like mm-hmm. the where the chord changes fall it, uh, is not where your ear expects them. So, I mean, th- that's sort of my gripe with the song is it's just sort of like unnerving <laughs> it it made me think of emmett otter's jugman christmas like it very much put me in that right away and mm-hmm. i don't know if that's just because i watched that in july i watched that <laughs> film all the time uh and there's something like charming about it but yeah it's not my favorite bit in this episode for sure but that makes sense to find that sensibility there it's this sure. joyfully folky Mm-hmm. aesthetic as are Jerry Nelson's overalls. <laughs> it's also a number that I think I would like better if it wasn't the first number in the episode. And especially if it wasn't the yeah. first number in a Kay Ballard episode. Right. right. <laughs> also, didn't the morsels say that this is the first time that American audiences saw the country trio? Yes. At least on the Muppet show. Uh, Cause they've, they've been in the UK spot when they've been on the show before. I did not care enough to bother to fact check this, but that is what the <laughs> morsels told us. Right. They, they had appeared on American television before on, right. I believe the Perry Como show, but, but this might be their first time in the Muppet show proper. So our next number features the marvelous Kay Ballard. So if you couldn't guess from the voice, uh, it's Kay Ballard and Thog. Uh, Shout out to the Cleveland Muppets. I feel like Thog is sort of a cut above the Cleveland Muppets. He was already a star by the time the Valentine show rolled around. (laughs) Yeah, but he's technically amongst their numbers. Sure. So is Kermit. (laughs) And Miss Mousy, yeah. Oh, Miss Mousy's firmly. (laughs) (laughs) On a scale of Cleveland to not Cleveland. (laughs) So this is uh, Oh Babe, What Would You Say, uh, which was originally performed by an artist named Hurricane Smith 
And the the writing of it is sort of in dispute. Uh, Hurricane Smith was the stage name of Norman Smith, who was a musician and producer who worked frequently with the Beatles and Pink Floyd. And uh, according to some sources I found, actually his wife wrote it. She's credited in some places as E.S. Smith or Eileen Sylvia Smith. Uh, But when you Google her, she's only referred to as a lyricist. So my suspicion is that they wrote it together. Hmm. But I want to definitely shout her out because a lot of sources just credit it to him. And uh, yeah, don't. That sucks. That sucks. Yeah. 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 As a a female songwriter. uh, Yeah. Fuck that. So, yeah. So uh, this was a number three hit and uh, Liza Minnelli's recorded it. And depressingly, if it also, if you Google uh, Hurricane Smith uh, under their people also ask, one of the questions is what happened to Hurricane Smith? And when you click on it, it says death. Harsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's coming for us all eventually, but inevitably. inevitably. Yeah. I wonder if Kay Ballard asked to do this number specifically to stick it to Liza. <laughs> Ooh, I like this theory. Uh-huh. 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 And then I wonder if Liza somehow slipped a 20 to the costume designer to stick it back to Kay. <laughs> oh, my God. We need we need to talk about this terrible dress. I mean, and really, like, if you don't normally look at our show notes and you're not watching along with us, now is the time to go look at the show notes. What? It's like she's wearing because Liberace's what? camping tent. <laughs> she's wearing all of Baby Jane at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and boots. It's, it's it's just a so bizarre a Christmas tree of pink tulle, just all kind of gathered in a way that doesn't make sense. And I, it's architectural, right? Like it's yeah, and it doesn't even look comfortable. No. Like normally, I'd be like, "Great, she looks comfortable, let her live her life." But it doesn't even look. She grabbed the tent from Carnival that she started on Broadway, famously, and wrapped it around herself. That's what happened. It's so ugly. It's so bizarre. I did wonder whether somebody had decided to like fill out her shape in a way that made her look more thog-like because she's dancing with this enormous puppet, but that it still that doesn't make any sense. But it just looks awkward cuz she can't get near him, which is actually a sort of a good segue. I don't I love thog, but I don't love thog in this mode particularly cuz it's a, it's a little bit he can't dance and there were a couple times when i was sort of nervous that he was gonna fall over (laughs) like it's a little bit too much for the puppet i think i mean obviously it's not and what what do i know like i'm a dummy with a podcast obviously they're very good at this but like it i don't know a couple times it made me uncomfortable and actually i think her in the dress because she also looks so physically awkward only made it worse (laughs) that i was like he's gonna fall she's gonna fall they're not gonna do each other i don't know i i did i didn't like it yeah with both of his arms kind of swinging free it felt a little risky to the balance of the puppet but also it it let them do more with him but it also kind of limited things because they had to be aware the, of his arms feet. when they were choreographing well not in the part of the shtick right because like he did i mean he hits her on purpose like that's mm-hmm. the joke but like he, he the feet too the feet are sort of weird and wobbly uh, we should say this is um jillian lynn is back as our choreographer of of cats and phantom of the opera fame the, the number feels a little manic but then at the last minute somebody said "Kay, can you just r- rein it in a little <laughs> and thog too for that yeah. 
uh, because it it feels like there's this mania to like her eyes and like every movement she's doing. Like she's playing to the back row of I don't know Carnegie Hall. Um, it's huge, but then somebody was just like, "Can you pull it back just a hair?" And so it feels disjointed. Yes, but also I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, as much yeah. as I don't understand the dress and the the energy is a little uneven across the number, it's fun to watch her have fun. And it's always mm-hmm. fun to watch Thog, even if he's flailing more than he does elsewhere. I Overall, I dig it with the note of what's that dress, but everything else is cute. Right. This is my favorite number in the show, which is a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> but... All right. Well, then, uh, let's move on to something that I know Adam hates. My <laughs> shoe's untied, but oh, I don't care. <laughs> Ain't figuring on going nowhere. Oh, I just have to wash and comb my hair, and that's just wasted effort. Even the laugh track doesn't know what to make of the sketch. Yeah. Is it a song? Is it a sketch? Is it funny? Is it unfunny? It'll interest you to know that uh, the the writer uh, and original performer of the song, Carson J. Robeson, uh, began his musical career as a whistler. So... Oh, well. (laughs) If that... Now I'm interested. If that tells you anything. I don't know um, what it tells me. No one's got to make a Walter joke? (laughs) I mean, you... It's wide open. That just shows what what regard we have for that movie and that character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so uh, the name of this song, question mark, uh, is uh, Life Gets Tejas, don't it? Uh, This was our our UK spot, again, with the hyper-appellation in the UK spot. This is definitely not skiffle. This is straight up hillbilly nonsense. But it was it was a hit in 1947 for the aforementioned Carson J. Robeson, who was uh, mostly known as a composer of event songs, which are songs about like tragedies. Like he wrote a lot of songs about like train wrecks, the wreck of the Shenandoah, the wreck of the number nine. He also wrote a song about the Scopes Monkey Trial, which I did not look up. Um, but. <laughs> It's called the John T. Scopes trial. Maybe someday I will get bored enough to look it up. But, um, but no, I, I like the winds going in the show notes. Yeah. Oh um, so, uh, according to the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, with a continuous studio career from 1924 to 1956, Carson J. Robeson is probably the most recorded singer songwriter in country music history. And they also noted, ever alert to changing tastes, he wrote and recorded Rockin' and Rollin' with Grandma in 1956, the year before his death. I did look that up. It's fun. (laughs) Glad someone's having fun. (laughs) The most recorded singer-songwriter in country music history? Yeah. uh, Have have we heard of Dolly Parton? Yeah, Yeah. when did the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame write that copy, do you think? It's it's a... A reasonable question that I don't have an answer for. So yeah, so this is uh, sung by Pa from the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band, and it's just him. It's not the rest of the band. And uh, him and a a dog and pretty much everything as he sits in the rocking chair uh, and complains just kind of happens around him, kind of slowly, kind of, I mean, not funny, really. It just kind of happens. And not even, it's not tedious, like, right? He's just, he, like, the chorus doesn't, 
even make any sense. I mean, what am I looking? I mean, it is tedious for the the person watching it. (laughs) Right, right, right. But like, actually, his life is anything but tedious. His life is very is very action packed (laughs) in tragedy. Yeah, if this is just the way it goes, sometimes his house falls down. He has to rebuild it, and that is a lot of effort. We should say that it is spelled T E E J U S. I refuse. (laughs) (laughs) See, in the show notes, it will be spelled correctly. Oscar Hammerstein could never. So the next number we're actually going to talk about in the backstage plot, uh, which is Floyd's fugue for Frog, but we'll move on to our last number, uh, which is Mihal's favorite, <laughs> One Note Samba. Why would you advertise that you're only using one note? <laughs> and then also lie about it. It's not even true. Now the new one is the consequence as the one we've just been through. As I'm bound to be the unavoidable consequence of you. There are so many people who can talk You have used up all the skill you know when at the end you come to nothing. Or nearly nothing. So I come back to my first note as I must come back to See, I love that, but I, I'm also a, a weird bossa nova nerd. I'm with you, though. I think that they... Uh, cracked the the sort of mystery of the song by turning it into a challenge to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. And to have Piggy as the uh, challenger on the B section is an excellent choice. Um, so yeah, so this is, this is One Note Samba, uh, which is an Antonio Carlos Jobim song from 1962, from that period of time in which Bossa Nova really broke through. Um, the original Portuguese lyrics were by Newton Mendonça. The English translation was by John Hendricks. And uh, Jobim was uh, often credited as the father of Bossa Nova. He, he wrote pretty much every bo- major Bossa Nova song you can think of, including Girl from Ipanema, which is sort of the biggest one. And uh, yeah, the song was recorded by many, many jazz and easy listening artists, including, yes, noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra, who recorded it with uh, Jobim himself on an album from 1971 called Sinatra and Company. Nice. They did a couple albums together. And if yeah. you like this kind of music, uh, you cannot go wrong by seeking out the Sinatra Jobim collaborations. It's true. He's also a noted uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim stan. We're going to have to add that to his description every time we mention Sinatra. <laughs> Go to his Wikipedia now and update it. <laughs> um, so th- this song lives in that line of like Johnny One No and Mr. Monotony, all the like all the composers who sort of wrote, uh, we only do this no, even though they weave in and out of it. It's funny. I never thought of that as a genre, but you're totally right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I will say, uh, Miss Piggy is very unsettling. She looks very unsettling this season and her neck doesn't match her head. And it's very (laughs) weird to me. I'm glad you brought that up because I have said that and edited out my comments saying it at least twice before. So now we'll finally get it in the episode. Her neck is bright pink and her face is like, like a dull off white. It's very weird. Sometimes it takes us a long time to learn how to blend, okay? I understand. <laughs> Listen. Some of us wow. are still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> but she shows up playing a kazoo, and that is I pretty mean, cute. Yes. What I love about this number is it gives you a sense of what 
Kay was probably like at that era of her career when she was touring with Spike Jones, because mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing the Spike Jones orchestra did. And to get to see her pull out all these different instruments and interact with the band, like, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those, like doing the thing that she does well. Which I wonder if she brought this song to the show and said, I used to do this with Spike. It's in my, it, it exists. I, I suspect that whether or not she brought this specific song, she probably suggested the concept. Yeah. I do like her outfit in that number. Yeah, I mean, we have we have talked in past episodes and and made many gifts of like some seventies tastic mm-hmm. clothing of which we hardly approve on both men and women. It's just that thog dress that is a giant mystery. Yep. Yeah, she seems very bold and very comfortable. I'm for it. Indeed. Well, it's interesting is she wears two versions of this exact same outfit mm-hmm. in this episode because in the talk spot really? she wears the same outfit but in gray, and here it's in red and white. I did not notice that. I'm going to look at the gifts right now. It's definitely her, like, night. Well, it's a very, like, night 1976. Outfit. Yeah, caftan. Yeah, she had of. to get one in every color, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I didn't make a gift of the color. Of Before she goes off to look. the dinosaur co- golf tournament. Right. Ready! Three, two, one, fire! It is time once again for a shot out of a cannon. Let's talk about our opening gags. We've got a, another recycled gag. Uh, Crazy Harry must have heard us call the last episode dynamite because he shows up to explode some here. Fozzie attempts a tasteless joke, but Miss Piggy appears and sets him straight. Hey, have you heard the one about this very fat pig? Have you heard the one about this very flat bear? <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if this is a milestone, if Miss Piggy is doing her own voice at the same time that another Frank character is on screen. Has this happened yet? Uh, uh, I don't remember. I think, I think yes. They were, weren't they both, they were both on stage for, uh, Hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? Yeah, they've done it musically, but, yeah, right. but as far as like a sketch, it. I don't think so. But I feel like we've asked this before and said no, but they were on stage for <laughs> when you play well, another Dunsmany Rock. We've song. definitely seen two Jim characters interact. I just can't remember if we've seen two Frank characters interact. Okay. And I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's Frank as Piggy. It definitely doesn't sound like the Richard Hunt Piggy that we all hate. But it's it's a lot close if it's not Frank, it's a lot closer. I'm not, not a fan of the Richard Hunt Piggy. I Okay. Yes. Hate hate was a strong word. <laughs> It's it's great though, <laughs> like the you can't quite hear it in the clip, um, but like the he Fozzie anticipates getting hit, <laughs> and makes this little sound, and then his hat goes flying <laughs> off. I, I love everything about this. I, I enjoy when Fozzie's hat is a character and a puppet in itself. Yeah. Uh, anything from our yay correspondent this week? Not only does she not get a yay, she doesn't even get special as in special guest star. She is just guest star K Ballard. Aww. Which, if I was a conspiracy theorist, which I am not, but if I were, I would say this plus that dress plus having to wear two versions of the same outfit in two other scenes. Mm. I'm wondering if maybe people at the Muppet Show decided pretty quickly that they maybe didn't enjoy working with her. Oh. Again, that's total <laughs> conspiracy theorist. Like, I, there's no evidence for that. Except for what I just Or it's just the end of the season and everyone's tired and (laughs) out of money and also possible. Yeah, they're like I did one of the Muppet Morsels at some point pointed out that um 
for season one, there were four people working in the Muppet workshop in London. Um, and they were frequently pulling all nighters. Uh, and in season two, that got up to, I think 12, just to, to give a sense of the workload and, and like what happened when they were actually successful. Um, which has nothing to do with Kay Ballard and her costumes and whether she's a very special guest or not. But I think by this second to last episode in production order, I imagine everybody was exhausted. I'm, I'm sure. Like one of the reasons we don't see so much of Gonzo is because Dave Gulls also worked in the workshop and they just really needed him there at this point. Yeah. Maybe there was just no fabric left other than a giant pile of pink tulle. And they were like, well, yes, she's going to wear this somehow. She does get a yay at the end of the episode. Well, having settled that, I'd like a warm thank you to our special guest star, Miss Kay Ballard! Yay! Oh, she gets a special there, too. Yeah. Proper special. It sounds like somebody pointed it out to Jim. (laughs) (laughs) She She had to earn it. Yeah. I mean, she did earn it. She was working very hard. Yeah. All right. So... In our backstage plot, uh, the band is revolting, or at least the the part of the Muppet Orchestra that is also the Electric Mayhem, uh, led by Floyd, is, as he puts it, ankling. But but Floyd, the show is on. You should be in the orchestra pit. Sorry, man. I'm ankling. Ankling? Yeah, ankling. You know, leaving. I've come to the coda. I'm using the door marked exit. Like a banana in the presence of ice cream, I intend to split. It's the theme song. The theme? Kermit, you are talking to Floyd Pepper, the hippest of the hip. I mean, I have a room for life at the home for the chronically groovy. <laughs> and every week I have to come in here and play dun 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 Nice. It's embarrassingly square. Oh. And I don't play square. In a number of places across this episode, there are Muppets who sing their version of the theme song, and it is always cute to watch Kermit, like, bop along. Like, he really Mm -hmm. digs it in a nerdy old dad way, and that's always fun. (laughs) He's into it. Um, But Kermit gets what he refers to as a stay of execution. So the band agrees to stay for Kay Ballard's number, and then they agree that they'll stay beyond that number if Floyd can write a new theme song, uh, which Floyd assures Kermit that he will despise. If I can write the new theme song. Oh, oh, that'll be fine with me. No, it won't, man. Uh, Why not? You hate my music. You won't understand it. Now listen here, I'm pretty hip too, you know. Not hip enough. Nobody understands my music. I mean, I don't even understand it. You don't? If I didn't know I was a genius, I wouldn't listen to the trash I write. The trash he writes, we learn, is Fugue for Frog. So let's hear a clip. It's called Fugue for Frog. See? I already love that part. Good, because you hate to rest. Hit it! It says what the product does. It is the Muppet Show. <laughs> I lo- It sounds to me like uh, the Tonight Show theme in the 80s, and I was here for it. Yeah. yeah. I- in the Muppet Wiki, I-, I forget exactly what they say, but something like, it's reminiscent of Frank Zappa's sound at the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Dr. Teeth's face while they're playing this is so funny. <laughs> I don't know. It made me very happy. And this is such a stupid thing I'm about to say, but because they, they've set up the, the band backstage for this and um, Dr. Teeth's uh, keyboard has chords coming out the back, which is like just the kind of detail that they did not need to do. Like I wouldn't have noticed if they weren't there, but I noticed that they were. And I love when they go that hard on the props. Somebody pulled an all-nighter to make those cables happen. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any musical analysis of Fugue for Frog, Christy? No, I I, I agree with, with uh, Robbie's sentiment. It, it sounds like the theme to, like, whatever late show comes on at 1.30, mm-hmm. you know? Right. <laughs> yes. Conan. Like, I, I definitely had that feeling of, of like, I, I'm too awake to be hearing this right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I wish they'd kept it. Or, like, dropped it in for certain guest stars. To me, it sounds like something that maybe they wrote to use for the sex and violence pilot, mm. where yeah. you know, Electric Mayhem is, is very featured. And uh, maybe it's just been kicking around and they found a, an excuse to deploy it here. So uh, the, the reconciliation does not work. Uh, the band ends up leaving anyway, uh, leaving Rolf to play the closing credits all by himself. This does sound a little square. Play hound, play. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph is doing his best. Nigel, I have to say, I really have to say, Nigel is also unsettling to me because often <laughs> they shoot him from behind and you can see his eyelids on the back of his eyes, mm-hmm. but you also then see white <laughs> going into like his bald head and it's just bizarre to me it was very unsettling yeah you don't want to think too hard about the construction of muppet faces or how their skulls work but here we are here we are (laughs) i also love that when when ralph has a a solo on stage he has a beautiful grand piano but that the one that he plays down in the orchestra pit is rinky dink as fuck (laughs) so out of tune so So, Honky tonk. Ralph loves an out of tune piano. Is that what it sounds like in the closing theme normally? Like, is that continuity or no? I, I, I don't I think so. I, before. I think they made a point of making it sound extra, like, you know, silent movie. Right. He also makes a point of playing it extra square. Like, as you <laughs> said, throughout this episode, we hear people sort of grooving on the theme and like humming it and getting into it. And this is like the most like on the beat version of it you could possibly play. It's like, that song can swing, but not here. <laughs> yeah, no, Ralph is just going to play what's written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is some kind of solidarity. It's like, all right, Frog, I'll stay, and I will play this music. Boy, howdy, will I play it. I wonder a lot about Ralph's relationship to the band members of Electric Mayhem, oh, because yeah. he plays with them a lot, but we don't ever really see them interact. Like They don't really ever do dialogue together. And they have another keyboard player, so I, I just, I don't know. Do I, I, you think Rolf is sort of like, ah, oh, these kids, or does he like being with the band, or I don't know. 
I think maybe he's like the grumpy guy who it like plays with the band, but isn't like doesn't go out with them after. Yeah, he's like a session guy who just goes uh-huh. home. Yeah, to watch All in the Family. But you would have thought that you know we we only see trumpet girl in the orchestra pit usually, and now she seems to be aligned with the Electric Mayhem, and we also get her only line of dialogue where she says "Drag City," and it's very cute. <laughs> Speaking of very cute, at the very end of the episode, apparently there are different versions of what the last shot is, depending on uh, where it aired or where you watched it. But at least on Disney Plus, the last shot we get is of the Electric Mayhem backstage. Uh, But if you're paying attention, Kermit is sitting up on like the second level with his feet outstretched and he's like waving at the camera like a like a little kid. It's really (laughs) funny and really cute and totally inexplicable. It's very cute. There is a gift in the show notes. What was the other version? What did the wiki say was the other version? The other version just ends with uh, Nigel and Rolf. Ah, okay. And not this glamour shot for the mayhem. I appreciate that they that they bothered right to like to have that continuity and because like that's it's basically a whole extra sketch that they had to that they had to record music for and film because normally the closing credits are the closing credits. Honestly, better than um, life is tedious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they they put in some effort this episode. It. Paid off in strange ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did anybody find themselves trying to replicate with your wrist the way that Floyd moves in and out of frame? Because it's really fun. No, but I know what you're talking about. I thought about it and I, I made a gif of it, but I, and I, I didn't try to actually do it, but I did. It did occur to me that that was difficult <laughs> the way that he walks. I was trying to figure out how to describe it because it looks like he's being like motivated from his clavicle. <laughs> Like he's being led by the chest onto the stage and his head is just sort of bobbing and following him. We also have this weird little running gag where Kermit keeps taking falls on stage for reasons that are never explained, which is delightful because Muppet slipping and falling is always delightful. But I don't know if this was, you know, written into some other episode and got moved to this one or there was a sketch that was recorded and we just never got to see or there's an icy patch on stage but it keeps falling it's great made me laugh every time yeah yeah super cute yeah i'm for it muppets falling funny always (laughs) right well let's talk about the sketches uh we've got a muppet news flash Kay ballard plays ms gretchen powers who is trying to set the world record for the longest sentence ever spoken they set up this joke with the the newsman is about to interrupt her longest sentence and he keeps trying to interrupt her. And then instead they go for a less funny joke with a commentary about how she's driven her husband insane. There's no payoff. Also, it's it's not a sentence. She's just speaking gibberish. There's no structure whatsoever. It makes yeah. words have meaning. I guess <laughs> if you just keep talking, does that count as setting the record for the longest sentence? No, it's not a sentence. <laughs> no, that is certainly not a sentence. This sketch bored me so much, I forgot that there was any payoff, because just like when she starts talking, I tune out. But there's not, there's not really payoff. No. <laughs> payoff's a strong She word. is dedicated, at least. Yes, I. that's exactly what I had written down. Kay Ballard is, like, committed to the bit and acting for the gods, but my god. <laughs> yeah. Other than Kay Ballard's performance, there's nothing here. No. Just word salad. Just word salad. Honestly, my whole career, just word salad. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, at the dance, we've got 
Muppets insulting each other. We've got a loud lady bit, which I got very excited when I saw the loud lady on the screen. And then she said a thing that wasn't even funny. And it wasn't, it wasn't their usual joke at her expense. It was some other thing that wasn't really a joke. But we've got Miss Piggy whispering sweet nothings to Kermit in Italian and then claiming it's Pig Latin. And the way that she literally falls over laughing at her own joke and then gets up and falls over again is wonderful. I'm for it. So I said to him, what kind of a girl do you think I am? I told him I never wanted to see him again. Never, never, never. Do you think I did the right thing, Herman? I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. <laughs> oh, il canto e lavore, my bambino. Oh. Uh, is that Italian? No, it's pig Latin. <laughs> Kermit looks disgusted and she just keeps going. <laughs> it's so like the the contrast between their two faces is so good and like people in the background looking at them. <laughs> and she's thrashing around which makes me wonder if this is also just another way that Frank is fucking with Jim. That sounds right. George and Mildred are in this at the dance too. Uh, and Mildred is an asshole to George and, and George um, gives as good as he gets this time, which I, I, I did kind of appreciate. I mean, I'm, I'm generally team Mildred, but you know, she's really classist to him sometimes and I don't care for it. Yeah. I mean, the way George laughs at his own joke feels a, a bit much. But. I mean, they're, they're, they're being mean to each other in a way that is sort of uncalled for. <laughs> they could just be nicer to each but other. Yeah. Have general. they tried being nicer to each but, other? <laughs> well, you know, we know the relationship is doomed. <laughs> is it, or do they retire somewhere together? To Cleveland. So, in the talk spot, uh, Kay offers to help Kermit resolve his issues with the band, since she is a bit of a musician herself. <laughs> which she says so kindly, and then we see her play like five instruments in one note, Saba. She's a bit of a musician, um, but she calls in Animal, and we get to hear him sardonically kind of yelling the theme song while. Kay and Kermit bop along to it, which is also great. Now listen, why are you guys so unhappy? Oh, well, I, you've got a point. I'm willing to say you have a point. But Kay and Kermit are into it, and it's very sweet. Animal does not agree with Kay's point and he attacks her. She tells him his problem is with Kermit. So he attacks Kermit, uh, which leads to this whole battle between them. They pop behind the wall and pop back up with Animal having Kermit in a leg lock. And Kermit comes back up and he's all squished down into a little ball, which is fun. There, that's the end of what I have to say about it. <laughs> I wrote in here like, oh, I'm tired, but that's because I have to write more about these two comedy sketches that are coming up. Um, sure. Yeah. Kermit comes up squished into a little ball, which is fun. And, you know, animal communicating with eyebrow waggles and head gesticulations and yelling the theme, theme song is fun. Yeah. This, this whole bit is like a really good scene for Kay Ballard to be Kay, Kay Ballard and just like mug at a camera. Kay Ballard has always reminded me of like Linda Lavin and Martha Race mushed together. And so it's just like a lot of teeth and eyes and I'm very fine with it. 
the good fit for the Muppet Show. Yeah. Yeah, she's Muppety in her way. Right? Teeth, eyes, hair. <laughs> yeah, those are the defining characteristics of a Muppet. <laughs> Occasionally a nose. But just <laughs> <laughs> but, not but mostly no. teeth, eyes, and hair. Yes. Yeah, they should have made her a Kay Ballard Muppet to take home. She's basically a walking Hirschfeld, so... Um, and I, I, I enjoyed it. It made me laugh. Yeah. Oh, now I want to see a, a cartoon of that horrible dress. All right, let's talk about this barber sketch. A very shaggy creature comes into a barber shop and asks for a short haircut. He says his rock group broke up and he wants his hair cut really short. And the barber keeps cutting until there's nothing left. And it is a very visual gag, so we don't have a clip for you. But even... With the visuals, it's very drawn out, and they keep cutting back to Statler and Waldorf saying other things that aren't jokes. It's very strange. It's also a joke that you know the punchline of the minute you see the setup. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was fresher in 1977, but... Or, you know, for children. <laughs> it's also interesting, because this is where Statler and Waldorf really get used, because there is no Fozzie in this entire episode basically yeah if Fozzie had been the barber this would have been a very different sketch mm-hmm. right because it's a it's a technical problem because right they have to keep cutting away to swap out the the shaggy creature puppet for a smaller version right but it's not a very elegant way to do it and it just kills the pacing to to cut to and yeah they could have done this with editing i feel oh yeah yeah that's a you know cut to the barber cut to right anything else. right just green flying around Mm -hmm. yeah 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 but uh there is less and less of the customer and then he disappears and the barber sneezes and he lost a customer at the end yeah really got to collect payment before (laughs) yeah (laughs) our continuing our our ongoing thread of um you know union questions labor questions the muppet theater george is consistently being asked to clean things up on stage that should not be his job is there no crew at the theater he's a janitor if it's not his job who else's job is it that's the correct stage crew the pa the assistant stage manager scooter quite literally scooter i i it's this is not he's the janitor there's one mop and on stage and backstage are two different things in my professional experience (laughs) this is also a scooterless episode yeah Mm. yeah well then there you go george has to do the onstage cleanup you wanted to be in showbiz. This is showbiz. Yeah. George was asked to remove a body from the Again. stage. <laughs> which is, Let's not forget. Which is funny because we know they have paramedics hanging around. Well, the now they do. I guess they hired them later <laughs> after several accidents. So we've got a whole other comedy sketch. It is the uh, intended use of Vendaface, the world's first fully automated facelift machine. Uh, it's a whole thing. Uh, one Muppet, played by Frank Oz, comes up and gets her monstery features removed and replaced with uh, more mainstream or prettier ones. And then Muppet number two, played by Aaron Oscar, sees this and loves it and steps up and then gets all the features that came off of Muppet number one. So she comes away looking like a monster. Alas. <laughs> very dark her scream is great that ominous next is great um it is cool that these arms come out of venda face and you know a puppet has to pop off all of the features from these uh two other puppets and stick them back on 
And that sounds very tricky and very impressive. And it also just, it takes a long time. It really does. This is, this is the Venda phase. I mean, I guess there's one next week too, which I haven't watched yet. Um, I mean, I have in my life, but not <laughs> for this. So maybe next week's is better. But like this is, this is the Venda face gag that I remember. I do not remember it taking this long. <laughs> yeah. Like it really drags. I liked it. It like, I, but I was just so engrossed in watching it all happen that I was like, "Oh, there go the eyes. There go the, there, there goes yeah. the hair." And I, I, I was just like drawn in by that. Um, mostly because I don't remember this episode until I watched it for this podcast. Uh, it, I, it was as if I was watching it anew, and I. I was delighted. There are satisfying sound effects. At least it's you're not just watching this in silence as we mm-hmm. were with the barber, but right. yeah, you're seeing the eyes come off and you're hearing these little or squishy sounds. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to make it fun. It is fun. I find Vendaface terrifying. I know I said this the first time that Vendaface popped up, but I, I can actually pinpoint what it is that I find terrifying about Vendaface. And it's, the voice, which I feel like is like at the intersection of like Hal from 2001 and the Daleks from the old school episode <laughs> of Doctor <laughs> Who, like, like the very like level, even Jerry Nelson voice put through that ring modulator. Mm-hmm. Fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very 77 and the hands too, right? There's something very like, original Cylons. Yes. Yes. About those hands. Like it's very, the whole thing is very 70s sci-fi and it's just from, from a puppetry standpoint, like those hands are what fascinate me for all the cutting in the barber sketch that like it all, it seems to be live and it seems that those gloves are assembling that puppet's fit. Like I know it's all adhesive. It's not like he's sewing a puppet together, but like, I don't know, just the mechanics of that. It doesn't seem like like he would have a lot of fine motor control in those gloves. Mm-hmm. And yet he is able to stick that whatnot together. I find it impressive. Anyway, I just wish it were slightly faster and funnier. But I do think it's a cool, like, because it is creepy. Like, they succeed in making it ominous and weird, which I like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we need to talk about the fact that there are so many jokes about makeovers and facelifts and haircuts and fat pigs in this episode. I mean, just in general, it would be great if there were a woman on the writing staff. Yep. Yeah. Like just in the world in general. Uh It does feel like these were the sketches that should have been in the Phyllis Diller episode paired with that backstage story, which was all about Hilda wanting a makeover. Mm -hmm. It's so like, I don't know if, Again, we've talked a lot about we don't know to what extent these sketches were written in a modular way and filmed in a modular way and then mixed and matched into episodes versus conceived and written for a specific episode. I mean, they couldn't have been filmed too far apart because we know what the production schedules were. But uh, it, it does seem like like a lot of these sketches belonged in a different episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the, I don't know mm-hmm. if I can think of sketches from other episodes that would have fit better with. Hey Ballard's backstage story, but I don't know. It just, that was a weird mismatch. Is there any universe in their production schedule where they might've made the Venda face for the Phyllis Diller episode and then, I don't know, not finished it in time or, or is there any way to explain why they used the 
Venda buddy concept first instead of mm. the clearly intended purpose of Venda face. The only thing that I could come up with is I wonder if there was a any kind of scheduling trouble with the guest stars themselves. And maybe at some point this was the episode that Phyllis Diller was supposed to be on and they and then one of them had a schedule problem and they were able to swap schedules and drop them in. And that might also explain why they both had these very similar band numbers. So fun fact, <laughs> when we were at the Museum of the Moving Image, um, one of the things on display is the the list of the season one guest stars, like the production dates, and all of their names are written in pencil. And something was erased under Kay Ballard. I, I took a picture of it, and I'm looking at it right now. Uh I can't tell what it might've just been the K ballot and moment chance were swapped because something was also erased under moment chance. So this is not super helpful, <laughs> but something was erased under K ballard. So your theory might be correct that things were swapped around. So even though she didn't appear on Scooby-Doo, we still have a me- meandering mystery that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> I do. And I'll post this in the show notes just cause I think it's neat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we've come to the end of, our discussion. Does anyone have sort of final wrap-up thoughts about this? Encore! Encore! Man, you're not so loud. They may hear you. No, it was fine. What? <laughs> and the truth is, this this is what played Kay Ballard for most of her career, right? Yeah. She was a very talented lady who ended up in fine right. situations. She was never, she was never, like, when you get tapas, there's, like, dishes that you, like, are devoured, and then there's, like, the Potatoes. The potatoes. This was the potatoes. <gasps> How dare you? Where's the fucking lie, though? Slander potatoes. I you thought you were upset we were slandering Kate Ballard. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. She's, she is, and again, like I said at the top of the episode, on paper, she makes perfect sense for the Muppets, but the Muppets didn't, uh, she didn't let the Muppets down. The, the writers of this episode let her down. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. But also like the parts that she was in are all perfectly fine. And she's part of the backstage plot. It's just all of the parts that aren't the backstage plot and aren't her just kind of bring everything down. Yeah. Just fine. Yep. All right. Before we go, Robbie, uh, give us some plugs. Where can people learn more about you and, and experience the Robbie Roselle experience. <laughs> uh, you have experienced the Robbie Roselle experience. Um, I am very easily findable. I am Diva Robbie on all platforms. I have a, a delightful live album out that's like half stand up and half uh, musical theater tunes. So uh, if you like musical theater tunes, you'll like me. Uh, and I co-host a pod- that album is called Oh Songs from Inside My Locker live at Fine Signs Fifty Four Below. Um, you were there, I think, for one I of was. the nights. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Um, I endorse it. It's fun. See, there you go. I wish you had seen the show the other night because I sang from uh, Sesame Street. Anyway, uh, and um, oh, I have a podcast every other Friday called Gay Card Revoked with Rob Schneider, not the Rob Schneider that you immediately thought of, but another one. Um, where we are uh, talking about gay totems that uh, people may have forgotten about. And this is also uh, something I endorse. I am a devoted listener. 
Robbie, if someone was going to drop in and take a sample, which episode would you recommend they choose? Oh, uh, I like a lot. I like the big business episode and the queen episode. I think that we just did is really good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our season one finale when we discuss the Moment Chance episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Well, you must admit, Nigel, this does sound a little square. Playhound, playing. I just didn't want you to think I had like gone offline or something. <laughs> Adam isn't talking. Something must be wrong. I mean, what if, it's rare for me. It's rare for me to be silent for that long. What if you were just, just like, like fuck K Ballard and just threw <laughs> your microphone? Fuck Robbie Rizal. Where did we get this Honestly, guy? Honestly, uh, unclear. Unclear. <laughs>